Hey y'all, it's Ali here. So I announced this on the Patreon and then I think I accidentally cut it out of the last episode or like I forgot to announce it, but uh, I'm taking January off. I'm not doing episodes of the show in January. I just forgot to say that. Um, Sorry. Uh, Yeah, so in 2021, I kind of inadvertently took January off to just get my head together, get some new episodes together, all that good stuff. And it was awesome and I really loved it. So I decided that this year I'm gonna do that purposefully. Um, And yeah, I've already recorded a few episodes. It's been really fun, really exciting. Um, Just taking some time off of the schedule is really good for me mentally because it allows me to just freely play games and get some thoughts together and yeah, uh, I'll be back in February with some really, really, really good episodes of the show that I'm super excited about. So look forward to that. In the meantime, I have this little bit. I wasn't sure what to do with it. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to put it out as like an intro to an episode or maybe on the Patreon. So I'm just going to put it out here as kind of a, a little piece of content for you to enjoy while I'm on this little break. Um, yeah, it's about Tunic, one of the best games I've ever played in my life. Uh, so hopefully you guys have checked that out or are interested in that game and will enjoy this little bit. And if you want more content like this all the time, but especially now while I'm on a break, you can head over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash zero brightness or zero brightness.com has all the links to everything. And yeah, you can find a, a billion extra episodes of the show as well as playlists and Um, videos and little pieces of writing that I do uh, exclusively for the Patreon. So go check that out if that sounds cool. And yes, uh, here is my little mini essay on Tunic. I hope you guys enjoy it. Video games have an originality problem, but not the one that you probably think. While it's become commonplace to bemoan the lack of new ideas and stories in video games, the real problem with video games, in my view, is that no one knows how to appraise something as quote-unquote original. Other art forms simply don't have this problem. In classic painting, up-and-comers were allowed to do studies after past masters. In folk music traditions, musicians put their own unique spins on traditional songs and standards. In film, genre and style are upheld as sacred, even when they're heavily patterned after the work of others. You could say the same thing about modern music, where chimeric genres seek to splice together disparate styles into novel musical creations. The individual elements may be things you're familiar with, but the end result is unique. Video games, however, have had a pretty hard time getting this sort of artistic conversation going. And, as always, I blame gamers. Gatekeeping in the world of video games is rampant. And it seems like gamers have more fun declaring games to be humdrum, ripoffs, or unoriginal than they do actually playing the games themselves. 
You may be wondering why I'm drawing this conclusion, and besides the brain-melting amount of Kotaku comments that I forced myself to read due to a deep-seated sense of self-hatred and a cadre of inherited mental illnesses, I've landed here simply based on how gamers talk about genres when it comes to new games. Think about it this way. If you wanted someone to take a new game seriously and not dismiss it out of hand, why in God's name would you call it a blank-like game, or essentially a copy of another game? And although Souls-like is the word of the day, this has been happening for years now. Before genres like action RPG and survival horror were established, people were calling games in the style Zelda-likes or Resident Evil-likes, as if they were store-brand knockoffs of the games you actually wanted to play. Time and hindsight generally prove these assumptions to be untrue, but it doesn't change the fact that people still held them at the inception of a new style. I've been thinking about this a lot because I just devoured Tunic, and it's seriously one of the best games I've ever played. And yet, the conversation about it has almost completely centered around the way that it incorporates elements from Zelda and Dark Souls. And like, yeah, sure, that's true, but it doesn't really help anyone understand what makes this game so brilliant and unique. Tunic kind of breaks the traditional conception of genre in video games because it's both heavily referential and also incredibly unique. It puts a ton of work into building a strange and beautiful dark fantasy world, one that feels familiar but is also mind-bendingly psychedelic and shockingly meta. The boundaries of reality in Tunic feel very thin and movable, as if at any moment your understanding of it could shift. It's an incredible feat for a game that could be roughly described as a love letter to 16-bit Zelda games that also features the slow, methodical, and hyper-difficult combat that is generally associated with Dark Souls. As far as slightly uninspired elevator pitches go, that's not a bad one, and it does capture some of what the game does so well. Tunic drops you into a 16-bit dark fantasy world, complete with cute yet creepy enemies and a look that recalls classic claymation, and lets you traipse across a beautiful overworld while you search for secrets and make your way through classically designed dungeons. It's a simple seeming game where everything is perfectly designed and placed. Unlocking shortcuts and finding items in a maze-like dungeon is still just as thrilling as it was on the Super Nintendo, and vibing to tranquil synth tunes while you search a dark forest for hints and clues is always engrossing. The combat, however, feels much more modern. It's heavy, methodical, and difficult. There's a surprisingly complex stamina mechanic, and your shield can parry. The game is also full of upgrades and abilities that significantly change how combat feels and how you approach it. Despite the 16-bit simplicity of it, you quickly learn that there are many ways to approach a fight and a shocking amount of depth to uncover here. But none of that really explains what sucked me into Tunic and made me obsess over its world. What did it for me was, well, the world. Tunic begins with a flyover of its charming overworld. You get a quick glimpse of where you'll be spending the next dozen or so hours before the camera centers on a lone figure, a small fox dressed like an RPG adventurer. 
Washed up on a shore with nary a sword and shield in sight, our pint-sized hero sets off to uncover their destiny. The first twist in Tunic comes at you fast. The first time you try to read a sign, you find that it's in a strange runic language. The first time you talk to an NPC, you see that the dialogue is also in this language. It might take a few minutes, but eventually you figure it out. The whole game is in this language. There are a few scattered English phrases here and there, mostly to give you hints and help you navigate the world, but the game really is entirely written in an unknown language. That's odd enough on its own, but it's not where the trail ends. Early on, you discover a page in the overworld. When you go to inspect it, the perspective zooms out to reveal that the game is being displayed on an old CRT TV, something you can see in the background as you inspect the page to find that it's a piece of a video game manual, written in the same runic language as before for the game that you've been playing. Up until now, you've assumed that Tunic is the name of the game, but now you realize that you may not even know what that's called because the real game is you playing as a character, playing a 16-bit style action RPG. The more of this manual that you find, the more confused you'll be. While it does reveal important details about the game, it also calls into question what this whole adventure is and where exactly you're viewing it from. Fourth wall breaking stuff aside, this mechanic is so brilliant. Putting the game's manual into the game as a meta collectible to find is so weird and wonderful, as is the manual itself, a beautifully illustrated and printed 80s style booklet in the style of the first few Zelda games. The sort of manual you would read as a kid and get super hyped up to dive into a new adventure. Once again though, this manual is not in English. Besides select phrases and many of the area names and page headings, you cannot actually read the fine print here. In this way, Tunic takes the idea of obtuse and unknowable game mechanics and gamifies it making the journey to figure out how to play the game and use its various features an element of the game itself. This is a big deal because it takes something that could be dismissed as just more quote unquote Dark Souls shit and turns it into a unique and novel game mechanic. One that has a massive meta component if you were around in the 90s. Playing adventure games with lavish manuals and or importing games straight from Japan and staring at pages you couldn't understand in the hopes that you'd absorb something from their mysterious, glossy interiors. Of course, it goes even deeper. As the story of Tunic, as cryptic and hard to parse as it is, is clearly centered around ideas of death, rebirth, and multiple worlds. The further you dive in, the more intriguing its setup and central mystery become. The choices made in this game are never purely aesthetic. There's always another layer to peel back and uncover what's underneath. Taking elements from the past and knowingly twisting them into something new, novel, and unique is basically how to make good art 101. Tunic is in constant conversation with its influences. Games like The Legend of Zelda and Dark Souls, taking things from those games and transforming them into something uniquely its own. Honestly, playing Tunic has made me question the validity of the entire Souls-like genre. Not the games themselves, but the fan conception of said genre. Like, why are beloved, big-budget games like Breath of the Wild and Nier Automata seen as simply having some influence from Dark Souls? 
but other games are considered Souls-likes. It seems like there's a value judgment there, that some of these games might be considered to be unoriginal copies of the Soulsborne games. And in that case, I would never want to lump games like Tunic or Hyperlight Drifter or Hollow Knight in with actual bad 3D Dark Souls ripoffs. The question to me, as someone who makes art, is how do you incorporate elements from these games without being labeled as unoriginal? Or do you just stop giving a shit about the labels altogether? I think, honestly, that might be the answer, as it seems like every quote-unquote like genre seems to spin off of a massively popular and influential game, stuff with greatest of all time status like Legend of Zelda or Resident Evil. So taking influence from those games is simply inevitable. The influence isn't the problem, it's what you do with it. In the case of Tunic, I think the influence works wonderfully. The game world is super dark and mysterious, and the experience is endlessly engrossing. I haven't talked much about it yet, but holy shit, the visuals and music in this game are so incredible. The world is as lush and verdant as a classic fantasy game, but also dotted with strange and intriguing bits of futuristic sci-fi tech. You'll find yourself unexpectedly slipping into a vaporous spirit world and falling into psychedelic underground passages overflowing with biomechanical horrors and dangerous enemies. You're always excited to see what's coming next, to witness the next visual motif or hear the next piece of swelling, mysterious synthwave music that serves as a game's aural backdrop. It's all masterfully executed and a real treat for fans of classic action RPGs as well as modern indie games. And really, this genre has long been about building upon influences. The Zelda games have always been influenced by 80s dark fantasy, with the original having a stated influence from the movie Legend, and Twilight Princess famously using music from Conan the Barbarian in its reveal trailer. Even Link's Awakening, the weird portable offshoot of the series, copped a massive influence from Twin Peaks, which was manifested in the game's cast of quirky characters and increased focus on slice-of-life interactions. When From Software shifted their focus to making dark action-adventure games, the Zelda influence really couldn't be downplayed, especially from the weirder corners of the Zelda series. The dark and claustrophobic yet still somewhat open-ended gameplay of Majora's Mask feels like a direct precursor to the early Soulsborne games, while the decayed and dying world of Twilight Princess feels like it could easily host its own Souls-style adventure. And it kinda does, with Twilight Princess being a game all about the boundaries of reality in a fantasy world falling apart completely, and a hero being caught in the middle of all of it. I mean. That's basically Dark Souls 3 if you think about it. Which means Twilight Princess is a Souls-like, and you heard it here first. Taken all together, this lineage of games contains a solid blueprint for how to make a dark, mysterious, and intriguing fantasy world. And yet so many games still can't do it. For how many games that are inspired by Dark Souls and or Zelda that exist today, few of them can capture that magic can give you the feeling of being hunched over a Game Boy Color as you mainline hour after hour of Link's Awakening in a dark corner of your basement. Tunic does what Nintendo don't, and it's not just down to retro aesthetics or a nostalgia bait. 
The game finds really new and inventive ways to construct a mysterious fantasy world and grafts those onto insanely tight gameplay and design to create a game that is just incredibly fun to play. While I do think it's an innovative and original game, I also don't really think that matters. The conversation about Tunic's influences is ultimately kind of boring and misses the point here. Similar to what we said about Hyperlight Drifter, the magic here is in the way that all of its disparate elements come together to create something engrossing and beautiful. The kind of game you want to 99% just so you can keep playing it. Or the kind of game whose soundtrack you'll be spinning for months, not just because it fucking rocks, but also because it reminds you of your time spent playing this stunningly great game. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that you shouldn't judge a game based on its influences but rather what it does with them. Tuna could have had a totally different look and feel and it would still be a great game. The fact that the creators went with what they did and then thoughtfully constructed a world and story around it is simply transcendent. It elevates this game from merely good to great and something that you must check out if you have any affinity for any of the stuff that it pulls from. It's a great new entry into a long-running artistic conversation, something that I hope to see more of as video games grow and mature as a medium.